Hello, uh, our dear listeners. Uh, it's great to have you again on our program, uh, Energy Currents. Today, we invite a professor of environmental studies from U.S., Dr. Darren McGee, join us to talk about his research on China's hydropower development and related issues, particularly about uh, social and climate um, related to the hydropower. So, uh, welcome to Energy Currents, uh, Dr. Darren McGee. Thanks. It's uh, great to be here and. Good to join with an old friend. Yeah, we we met years ago when we had a, a field trip to New River, which is one of the major rivers in southwest China, which is a, was a very hot topic about the transboundary uh, water resource management and uh, and hydropower development in back to that time of China's policymaking time. So, allow me to give a very short introduction of uh, Dr. Darren uh, McGee. He's a professor of environmental studies at uh, Hobart and William Smith Colleges. His main research interest is China's energy and environmental policy, in particular, the hydropower development and the related social, ecological, and climate impacts. Professor McGee gained his PhD in geography from University of Washington in 2006. All right, let's go to the uh, questions. So firstly, I want to uh, ask, when we talk about the climate change challenges facing China, uh, many people argue hydropower demand is uh, one of the major solutions. But when we think about that, we regard hydropower as a major uh, renewable energies, although which is uh, quite complicated when you talk about the uh, social and ecological issues in the metrics. So would you like to give you idea about uh, in the power system in addressing climate change uh, in the future energy system, what kind of advantages uh, hydropower do have and what kind of problems uh, if we want to develop hydropower in its full potential uh, to address climate change. So I think it's two questions. First is advantage of the hydropower. The other is uh, disadvantage of hydropower uh, in the context of the climate change uh, mitigation. Sure. It's a great question. Um, and as countries around the world, not just China, try to figure out their energy path uh, forward, each, each decision, well, almost every decision that those countries will make carries some uh, some advantage and some disadvantage, right? Uh, in recent recent weeks, we've seen a lot of news about the, the disadvantages of, of uh, renewable energy, specifically electric vehicles, in, in terms of mining impacts for things like lithium and um, how how uh, something that looks so clean and promising on the one hand uh, can also have lots of negative uh, impacts that we can't just ignore. Um, and of course, the same is true with hydropower. You and I uh, both know from much of our field work in when we were younger um, and, and, and from the work of uh, colleagues um, in China and, and around the world, that uh, the impacts can be quite severe if dams aren't done well and done carefully. Uh, I'll talk about the advantages, first of all, in a, in a renewable energy picture. If we imagine uh, China uh, going forward with its um, very aggressive and impressive investments in solar and wind energy, for instance, um, and and alongside those investments with uh, investments also in probably the world's most advanced grid technology. Um, China has really been a leader in, in, in those sectors, uh, in those investments in the past decade, decade and a half. In that context, hydropower can play a really important role uh, balancing things uh, like wind and solar. And what do I mean? In addition, wind and, and, and solar power aren't uh, what we call dispatchable. You can't turn them on and off uh, or what can turn them on when you need them uh, very easily, like you can other power plants. Hydro uh, has the benefit of being very rapidly dispatchable, meaning that it can go from very low output to very high output 
in, in, in a matter of seconds. That's called a ramp rate. If you imagine a, a grid where all of the different generators and, 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 and users of power on that grid are talking to each other in, in near instant fashion, then when uh, a large solar farm in Gansu, for instance, drops its output because of clouds, within a matter of seconds, hydropower in Sichuan or Yunnan could ramp up to uh, fill the gap, to balance that. Mm-hmm. And that, in my mind, is the strength of hydro. Is that it? So uh, I just sorry, I just jumping because you mentioned about the hydropower play a role as a pump storage, like a, a battery, a gigantic battery in the power system. But mm-hmm. as you mentioned, uh, the location, you know, uh, most of the hydropower capacity are located in the southwest China, but mm-hmm. the most demanding centers of the power are located in the east part of the country. And That's right. so my question is that uh, due to this uh, not really evenly distributed uh, location or the power capacities. How do you see uh, the the new battery technology, like the super uh, electric battery that's uh, in the development, to play a role apart from the uh, uh, the pump, the storage, like hydro? So because uh, that new technology in the battery technology will not be constrained by locations. You can build any big battery station, power station anywhere as long as you have land. So can you give us a little bit uh, comments on, on this? Sure. I am very excited about new battery technologies. I'm, and I think there's a lot more potential for rapid gains in grid scale, uh, sorry, utility scale battery storage that are cost effective. That's going to be easier, I think, than, uh, than the cost breakthroughs and the technology breakthroughs we need uh, for mobile, mobile battery storage for electric cars, for instance, and buses. Um, I don't have to worry about weight uh, of, of a utility connected big grid, uh, grid scale and um, utility scale battery battery facility. So sure, I, I, I agree that you can, those can be located uh, close to the demand uh, center, the load centers. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, very very examples of those. Um, right now, I'm in Australia, and of course, there's a huge uh, battery utility scale battery uh, facility in, in southern Australia. Um, the Tesla is uh, is the leader on, um, and uh, so I, I think there's great potential there. Uh, I, I also, though, would push back a little bit on the distance question, the distance issue, because I think China, more than most countries, is trying to tackle that with um, ultra high voltage, long distance transmission lines. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean good things for ecosystems or or, or, or communities uh, uh, in, in southwestern China where that most of that hydropower lies. But it does mean that the balancing area that the geography uh, the extent of that balancing area where hydropower is playing that that role to firm up intermittent renewables like wind and solar, that that geography can get bigger, right? Because those transmission lines um, at voltages of 1,000 kilovolts and higher, um, one, have lower losses in transmission than, than lower voltage lines would. Two, if they're ICT enabled, so information and communication technology enabled, which they are, they can do the job uh, still in, in, in matters of seconds, um, yeah. right? So... I think I think you're right that some of these solu- these storage solutions in the eastern uh, load centers will eventually be met by large scale battery storage. Uh, some of them will also be met by more distant hydropower storage. And yeah, so when we uh, kick off this discussion, I just mentioned about the disadvantage of the uh, hydropower demand in in the context of climate change. Uh, so I think uh, based on your past ex- uh, recent experience, you have seen and you have talked to many people. Uh, also uh, did a lot of research and published papers on the displaced uh, communities. And when we talk about energy demand, energy supply, how can we make balance between the social justice and the economic growth? So how, how do you assess, uh, I mean, when the climate is becoming more pressing issue in the 
national and uh, international uh, policy agendas. Um, when the countries, particularly the big emitters, want to achieve the uh, carbon neutrality by the next three to four decades, uh, do you think uh, for the policymaker it is still relevant for them to consider the disadvantages of the uh, hydropower in terms of the social and the ecological problems? That, that's a great question, and I think they absolutely have to. Um, because if you have farmers who can't farm because they have no farmland, uh, that creates a whole different set of social stability and economic uh, questions that the Chinese government doesn't want to have to solve, that the U.S. government, I mean, no government around the world wants to, to face those types of questions. So I think that absolutely we have to um, consider the social and economic and ecological disadvantages of hydropower and not just build every dam that's possible because we can. Um, I think there are other other choices that we can make, particularly efficiency, and I'll talk about that hopefully in a little bit, uh, where we start first by saving electricity and then decide what we have to build uh, in, in order to meet that reduced demand. But specifically to your question about um, disadvantages of hydropower, I had the great uh, fortune of, of working with some really smart colleagues, um, well, I have had over the past decade, decade, decade and a half, in, in China and in the US and in Germany, looking at uh, uh, socioeconomic, biophysical, and geopolitical impacts, both positive and negative, of, 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 of dams. And you know, a few of the big ones uh, are probably familiar to, to most listeners. Uh, obviously, displaced communities, right? When you build a dam that has a large reservoir, um, you're displacing uh, communities from the often fertile farmland that's down near the river's, river's edge. The most important example of that, most the best known example of that in China is, of course, Three Gorges. Uh, which you know famously displaced some 1.3 million people. Yeah. So uh, community displacement—it's—it's it's, it's one thing sort of to talk about in the abstract, right? That when you build a reservoir, you build a dam, it creates a reservoir, people have to move. Uh, when we look at it in the places where China's hydropower resources are richest, so down in the southwest, we're, we're not talking about it in the abstract anymore. Um, so uh, many of the communities who are being displaced, for instance, by uh, the development on rivers in the southwest, are members of ethnic minority groups. These are people who have very, very strong attachments to certain places, who have um, very strong community attachments that don't necessarily um, copy and paste to other communities when they're resettled into villages that look different, feel different, have concrete and brick buildings that are very different from the environments that they grew up in, um, that have maybe different soils, different farming climates, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So it's, it's, um, it's very hard for many uh, people who have grown up in in, in, in these cultures, in these areas, to be simply picked up and dropped into another community and restart. Um, uh, they may lack uh, many of the basic tools for uh, taking on non-farm uh, jobs, for instance. Not to say that they can't be retrained, but that's, that has to be a deliberate um, and serious commitment on the behalf of, of the power companies and the government. So um, another one is very, very so my, my colleague Brian Tilt at um, Oregon State University, uh, uh, um, an anthropologist, has done a lot of work on this. Uh, looking at things like community ties within uh, ethnic uh, minority communities, where um, more so maybe than in the communities that you and I inhabit, um, those ties mean not only things like friendship and, and help during difficult times, but also can mean uh, things like loans, right? And, and, and Identity. And, and, and certainly soft, softer things like identity, absolutely, right? And so if you take a, a community and resettle that community into three or four different communities, then all of a sudden those those social ties that are so important for economic reasons for identity identity reasons get fractured yeah uh biophysical impacts i mean every time you build a dam you change the river right you, yeah. you immediately um start reducing the water quality by by uh creating a, a reservoir that has much less dissolved oxygen higher temperature in general you uh, immediately start holding back sediment 
<clears throat> that sediment um, then means that the water coming out of the dam uh, is cleaner, if you will, has, has less sediment and is therefore more able to erode the channel and the banks and the sandbars downstream, which has implications for fish habitat. Um, when you change the, the flow of the river, the natural ups and downs of how a river flows by putting a dam there, it's called regulating the river, then that, then the change in that flood pulse, whether it's monthly or seasonally, um, has implications for all sorts of species who, uh, that, that might rely on those signals. Uh, about when to breed or to know when to go upstream to breed, for instance. So yeah. all of these, there are they're, they're tons of disadvantages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, I want to touch another very big issue, uh, which is also very relevant uh, in our discussion. You know, uh, China is entering the very new development stage, not as rapid development in the past two or three decades. And since 2015, China already uh, get its economic growth uh, slow, slow down and declining. The annual GDP growth has been Declined from maybe two digits a year to the one digit, even from like eight nine percent a year to the to six or even five percent a year. That's a big shift of the pace of economic growth, because the energy supply energy demand is based on projection of the economic growth. So when when the country is into uh, getting to this new phase, and uh, when demand of electricity is uh, not as high as before. Uh, even we put the population uh, into the discussion because according to the UN population agency estimates, China's population is much quicker than we thought uh, declining. So you put those two issues into the uh, discussion about the hydropower role in the uh, power system and uh, addressing climate change. How do you assess when economic growth is not as quick as before, when it decline, the, the population is declining, do we still need to have a lot of power capacity building or do we uh, now it's time to think about uh, make most of the current uh, power capacity and trying to fulfill kind of the potential of the demand uh, management. Uh, then we use those efficiency tools to help China continue to pursue a more sustainable development. So what, what, what do you think? I think you ask really good questions and you disguise each question um, as, as one question, but it's really five questions wrapped into one. Um, yes, this, this is, this is, these are, these are important points. So there are a couple things you're talking about, slowing economic growth uh, and a different type of economic growth, right? One that's less energy intensive, perhaps, um, slowing population growth, and then finally uh, efficiency. Um, so maybe just four questions in one, uh, but I'll see what I can do with them. Um, yes, I, so I, you and I probably have read similar uh, projections that the you know the China's probably looking at a population peak uh, around 2030, maybe a population, uh, maybe an energy demand peak also around the same time. Uh, that is, those are important numbers because it has real they have real implications, as you said, for for political implications for China's leadership, but also real and probably positive implications uh, for our, our our fight to to do something about climate uh, energy use reduction as China's sort of consumer class grows, there will be uh, the, 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 the proportion of electricity use or energy use that is demanded by consumers and by households will grow. Um, and, and the shape of China's energy uh, or electricity demand curve will, will be more and more affected by those household energy use decisions. But the uh, I, I think there's potential for um, those changes to be smaller um, than the than the gains will we should make as China's um, uh, energy demand in industry starts to shrink um, as that energy intensity starts to drop. 
Uh, the efficiency question is a fascinating one. And, and the several years ago, I had the opportunity to work with some brilliant people at China's uh, Energy Research Institute, uh, part of the Fagai with Nungyan uh, and Yin. And their perspective, I think, is really important here. They said, look, let's let's try to map a low carbon roadmap, road uh, pathway, sorry, for China's energy, for China's economy going out to 2050. Um, and let's start first, not by asking how much energy do we expect to need then based on population growth or whatever, but start instead by asking where can we use the energy we have, which is what you just said, more efficiently. Mm. And and. To me, one of the most important studies started that conversation in China, even before this RMI work, was one that uh, um, researchers at the Energy Research Institute did in about 2008, I think, where they mapped um, different lighting scenarios, just lighting, just light bulbs uh, for, for, for China uh, going out to 2020. Uh, different scenarios based on moving away from the old incandescent bulbs, which are very, very inefficient, uh, to more efficient CFLs and then LED lights. Um, and in the in the more aggressive scenario, which turned out to be completely plausible because we all know that LEDs are very cheap, um, switching to a 70% mix of LEDs basically had the same energy electricity savings every year as the amount of electricity produced by the Three Gorges Dam. Mm -hmm. right? That's a phenomenal amount of electricity saved uh, by doing really simple. We must, I think, China, the United States, every country that uses energy, uh, that uses electricity, has to start by saying, okay, how can we scale up that that efficiency uh, game um, to an industrial level, not just changing light bulbs, but how do we take the factories in the manufacturing center of the world, which is China, and go into every factory and look for places where we can use less energy at the end use because poor energy use. Yeah, I think this is a very uh, inspiring case uh, back to about 15 years ago when they project predicted that by doing this very so-called very simple uh, change, Although, you know, changing 70% to the light bulbs in China in this big country is not easy thing, right? But uh, at least we think uh, it, it's uh, very helpful to think how to manage the demand side uh, situation. Yeah. Because yeah. when you have some policy initiatives, some financial support uh, in this area, you might make most of the uh, development uh, like the uh, efficiency because uh, demand side as a, one of the major tools in the toolbox in the energy system management is probably most cost-effective thing. Uh, so I think the the other dilemma is that you know China, as you mentioned in in that discussion, China is still trying to adjust its energy mix in terms mm -hmm. of the most electricity, like two thirds, uh, are consumed consumed by second sector manufacturing industries. I think in the next decades, this structure will be reshift. I mean. Because manufacturing is is um, not uh, playing a big role in, in as before, and the more consuming uh, driven energy demand will come up. So in this sense, I want to ask you whether it's possible we can think uh, we don't need to build additional power capacity. We just need to move the existing capacity, which uh, supports the manufacturing, to the commercial and the residential areas, and that maybe still provide sufficient energy for for. For the I think that conversation is an important one to have. I think the demand in tertiary uh, for the tertiary sector uh, for electricity um, should be a lot lower than the industrial sector, right? Um, am I ready to say, you know what, stop building today? Um, all the new power plants. Uh, we, I don't know if I, I'd have to do a little more careful analysis, a lot careful analysis of China's energy sector right now to know if we could really say that. Um, I suspect that some of my colleagues at ERI or at uh, Rocky Mountain Institute. Um, We'd be ready to answer that question right now. Um, 
uh, you know, could say, yeah, with, with confidence, China has enough capacity right now if it just um, would focus instead of uh, instead of focusing funding on building new power plants, focus instead on finding the inefficiencies, managing the demand side, like you say. Um, and some of that stuff is really, really exciting. For instance, if you if you have, again, a smart grid like China is building everywhere. I remember eight, eight, maybe eight years ago, one of my Chinese students uh, from Chongqing uh, was telling me about a, a residential unit that, uh, where his parents had an apartment um, where he could plug in a meter into the wall anytime during the day and know the real-time price of that electricity mm -hmm. and could make a decision or his smart refrigerator or his smart air conditioner or his smart washing machine, whatever, could make a decision about whether to use that electricity right then or to wait until later, maybe at night, to do the laundry when electricity was cheaper, right? So those kinds of uh, price signals that can become automated over a smart grid and with smart devices talking to each other, um, for me or for you, doesn't matter that much to our pocketbook, right? Whether electricity is is eight cents per kilowatt hour or 10 cents per kilowatt hour, that doesn't matter all that much when it's just me or you. Um, but when you talk about 100,000 users, 200, half a million users, right? All of a sudden, this starts to add up in terms of uh, shifting the demand and being able to more efficiently allocate that demand to to users who need it at that at that moment. I can wait to wash my laundry till the middle of the night if my washing machine is going to do it automatically. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's the consumer-driven innovations about smart energy management. I do agree yeah. this is the future of the energy system, but we have a lot of thing to to catch up. You give yeah. a very interesting example from Chongqing, which is one of the most developed metropolitans in China. Yeah. Uh, the the China, China, Chinese entrepreneurs and the manufacturers and the business people, they really want to try something new. Uh, yeah. And I hope uh, this is kind of uh, low carbon te technology ongoing competition between China and other countries. Uh, that, that is good for the environment, for climate. Maybe mm -hmm. it's not good for some parts of the business areas, but uh, competition is always can make the benefits uh, to, to all of the members of society. Uh, I think we, we can uh, definitely keep eye on, on this kind of uh, uh, efforts. And mm -hmm. not only from China, but also from the uh, U.S., where you work and leave. You know, U.S. just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a phenomenon uh, law achievement from, from the government. Luckily, it was passed. And right. it will give a strong financial signals and long-term uh, guarantee to businesses from different kinds of low-carbon technology businesses to uh, really catch up with China. You know, <laughs> in the last two decades, China was champagne. But now I think in the next two decades, maybe another champagne is appearing and emerging from from a west part of the atmosphere. So uh, <laughs> you, you still have you still have doubt? <laughs> yes, unfortunately I do. But 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 maybe maybe uh <laughs> Okay. So by the end of this conversation, I would like you um, to share a book you you uh, read in recent time and also very impressive uh, about the the to topic. Uh, because we put this as a uh, interesting part of our podcasting is trying to learn from our guest speakers about our discussant uh, what's the uh, ongoing learning journey you know uh, mm -hmm. because we usually learn by reading right so this yeah. is a reason we put here so can you share a book you're just reading and uh, what's the main finding or takeaway from your reading now i use it in my classes uh, regularly it's called it's by a, an environmental historian of japan named brett walker um, and the book is called Toxic Archipelago, A History of Industrial Disease in Japan. And, it, you know, the title tells you right away that it's not going to be a very uplifting book. Um, but I think the most important uh, takeaway for me, for my students, for anybody who reads this book, 
is that we always have to be attentive uh, to the unintended consequences of our development choices, right? Whether those choices are nuclear power plants or hydroelectric dams or um, even solar and wind power. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Electric cars, organophosphate, pesticides, on and on and on. We have to uh, be honest about the limits of what we know. And, and, and be prepared to deal with the unintended consequences as they arise. Okay, uh, Professor McGee, thank you so much for joining us uh, in this uh, Energy Current episode. I hope you have the wonderful uh, sabbatical in, in, in Australia, and uh, I hope have chance in the future and you join us to share your researches and insights. Great, thanks for having me. Take care.